Well, we're in the second week of Advent, and we're in the second week of our Advent series titled The Word, and the banner for this week is The Word is Promised Concerning the Prophecies of Christ's First Advent. You know, there are dozens, really probably hundreds, of Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus, opposed to his first advent and to his second advent. And depending who you talk to, there may be as many as 360 such messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. I've looked at several lists of these prophecies, and I found that uh, the most reliable ones list about 120 prophecies, messianic prophecies about Christ's first advent. One list had 119 prophecies in it, and of those 119, 35 of them were in the book of Isaiah. seems that Isaiah uh, had a lot to say about the coming of the Messiah. And one thing that's true about Messianic prophecies is that we do not often see what the prophecy refers to until after what it refers to takes place. For example, Isaiah 7, 14 through 17. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now Isaiah here is prophesying to King Ahaz of Judah. He's prophesying that there will be both victories for Judah and defeats. And they'll be marked by the birth of a child from a woman. The woman he refers to is his wife, and the child he refers to will be his future son. That that child will have the name Emmanuel is an indication that, and it's a picture that God is present and actively working among the people of Judah in both blessing and in judgment. Now, of course, we know that that first portion of that prophecy is about Christ, but we couldn't have known that until Jesus came, and really, we probably wouldn't have recognized it unless Matthew had quoted that in reference to when he was speaking about Joseph, Mary's husband. Matthew 1, 20-23, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with, God with us. Now, there are some prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ and about his advent. There are a bit clearer than the one in Isaiah 7, a bit clearer about what they refer to, but then become crystal clear when what they refer to or who they refer to takes place. The prophecy we look at, we'll look at today is one of those prophecies. And it's one of the most explicit prophecies about Christ and his work. And while it's about his first advent, it's probably not a prophecy we would normally associate with Christmas. That prophecy was written about 700 years before the events it refers to occurred. The people that this prophecy refers to, or, or that was written to, were the Jews who would be exiled in Babylon. 
those people had been utterly defeated. They had lost their homes and their city and their livelihood and their nation. And even the ability to practice their religion, the temple, had been destroyed. They were in a foreign land with no apparent hope of return. No apparent hope of returning to even a little bit of what they had. And it seemed that God had abandoned them. The prophecy we're going to look at today is Isaiah 52.13-53.12. through 53.12. This prophecy is one of four, or perhaps five, that have uh, come to be called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. They are, about, they are poetry, and they are about this special servant of God. Now the prophecy doesn't use the term Messiah, it uses the term servant. And it's about the person in the ministry of who we know to be Jesus Christ. For the Jews in Babylon, it was a prophecy of hope for restoration and for, for forgiveness of sin, even though this servant, would, it would be centuries before this servant arrived. The title of the sermon today is God's Successful Servant, and we're going to look at the servant's success by what the servant song says about us, what the servant song says about God, and what the servant song says about the successful servant. So let's go ahead and read uh, the whole passage, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished by, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize 
maybe it's a little hard at times to recognize that what Christmas is about is about you. We're busy with presents and events and singing and caroling and the mall and Amazon. All those things, Lord, we're, we're concerned with at this time of year. And we do remember, although perhaps we could take a step back and remember a little more about what this is all about. It's about you. And may we remember, Father, may today be a time when we are, minds are prompted to remember a little bit more who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you that we can celebrate your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. So what the servant song says about us. Now, what it says about us uh, isn't pleasant. <laughs> we'll just say that right out. The first thing the prophecy says about us is that we're like sheep. We're like sheep that have gone astray. And most of you probably know that sheep are basically stupid. Some are stupider than others. <clears throat> the word astray means to stagger or to stumble. Joseph, when he was looking for his brothers in Genesis 37 was found wandering in a field. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know where he was going. He was astray, if you will. The idea here is aimlessness. But aimlessness because we have gone the wrong way. We've gone away from God. We are compared to sheep which, left to their own devices, will wander about with no direction and easily get lost. And while there's no purpose in these kinds of wanderings, there is a driving force. Force is sin. Before we knew Christ, we were driven by sin. We are full of iniquity. Chapter 53, verse 5. The last line of the servant song calls us transgressors. The New Testament agrees. Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. They have all turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their, tongues, use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. To get a little more specific, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, The sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy... Drunkards, revilers, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to impress the point, writing to the Corinthians, Paul concludes, and such were some of you. If Paul were here today, he could say the same thing. Such were some of you. And Paul could point at me and say, such was me. We don't like thinking about it. But while we may not, we, we may be able to say that we haven't committed the big sins, adultery or worshiping idols, all of us, all of us, before we knew Christ, were greedy or thieves or drunkards or revilers or fill in the blank. We all went our own way. But to finish that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, the Spirit, and, the, and by the Spirit of our God. All that because of Jesus. The servant says that there were some who saw the servant who were astonished at him. That part of the song really seems to be talking about the crucifixion. 
They were astonished when Christ suffered his torture and crucifixion. God speaks to and about the servant in that part of the, of the song. Isaiah 52, 14, as, And as many as were astonished by you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Astonished here means appalled. Many saw Jesus at his crucifixion and they were disgusted at what they saw. The servant who did not look human when he was on the cross, it would be that servant who would save. Isaiah goes on to say things like, we all hid our faces from the servant, and we held the servant with no esteem. That is, we thought the servant nothing, and we despised the servant. That's in 53.3. Despised is what Goliath thought of David. Jesus talked of how often he had wanted to gather the people of Jerusalem under his wing like a hen does its, does its chicks, but as Jesus said, you would have none of it because they despised Jesus. Despised is what the disciples thought of the women when they told the disciples on that first Easter morning that they saw the resurrected Jesus. Despised is what John records in his gospel of how people reacted to Jesus. And he even quotes from the servant song. John 12, 37 and 38, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's more when it comes to what the song says about us. Isaiah even asks a question. He says in, in uh, chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard, of, heard from us? The point, of it, <laughs> the point is, Pardon me, I'm, my voice is changing. The point is, is that most of us did not believe Jesus Christ when we first heard about him. We heard about him before, but before we believed, but we despised and we rejected the servant. The New Testament calls us enemies of God. In Romans 5, the New Testament calls us alienated and hostile to him. In Colossians 1, all that before we knew him. Many of you know that uh, I became a Christian just before, before I turned 19 years old. But I knew about Christ a long time before that, at least 12 years before that. I was told again and again at different points in my life about Jesus Christ, but each time I rejected him. It was only until Christ drew me. It was only until Christ gave me the faith to believe that I did believe that night, alone in my room. Most reject the servant before believing. John 1, 10 through 12. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So one more thing the servant song says about us. It says we are sick. Speaking of what the servant does, the first line of Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs. The Hebrew word for grief there is variously translated grief or sickness or illness. It's a sickness caused by sin, and, the sin, and sin is the illness. We are sick with sin. Our sickness is incurable. Incurable by anything we might try to do. We can't cure ourselves. Most of us, before we knew Christ, weren't, didn't even realize we were sick. You'll remember Romans 3, we just read None is righteous. No, not one. We are hopelessly sick in our sin, and we can only be cured by something outside ourselves. We can only be cured by the successful servant. 
<clears throat> what the servant song says about God. Song says God decrees that the servant will be successful. Isaiah fifty two thirteen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely; shall be, he shall be high and lifted up, and he and shall be exalted. The Hebrew word translated act wisely carries the idea that it is someone who understands or who is wise and that that wisdom inevitably leads to success. The author of Second King uses the same word when he's speaking about Hezekiah, king of Judah. Second Kings 18, 6 and 7. <clears throat> For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Whenever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Prospered there is that same Hebrew word, translated act wisely in Isaiah, means success. The Jews in Babylon, at first reading this, reading these words of Isaiah, at this point would not know what this servant would do. But what God says is that he'll be successful. And the result is that the servant will be lifted up and exalted. You might remember Hebrews 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Servant Song says that this is all God's will. First, Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper or succeed in his hand. What the servant does is God's will, and it's God's will to crush the servant, to crush his servant. Most of the versions I looked at use the same word, crush, to translate the Hebrew word. There's no mystery to the word. This is how Eliphaz, Job's friend, speaking of the ungodly, uses this same word, Job 4.19. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. Crush here means to kill. Crushing his special servant was always God's will, and Jesus knew it. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. The song says, God will reward the servant. Isaiah fifty three twelve. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The terminology used in that, uh, in that passage there carries a military tone. The servant is like a military victor, who is counted among the many or the multitude, and is counted among the strong or with the great. Great here meaning uh, in terms of numbers. The servant will receive the rewards of his success because he poured out his soul to death and is identified with the transgressors. That would be you and me. As to the notion of the spoils of victory, there is another way, another interesting way to think about it. It may be that the spoils are actually the transgressors themselves. The transgressors are divided, that is, they're taken from the strong. Paul Wagner, in his commentary on this passage, says this, if, this, if his spoils are a metaphor for those whom he has freed from their sins, then the great and the strong may refer to Satan and his minions who held these captives until they were freed by the servant. This is an old idea. A fellow named Theodore of Heraclea 
was a bishop in Thrace, which is in Greece, in the first half of the 4th century A.D. He put the idea a bit more succinctly. He said this, The inheritance of the Son is all those who believe in him. They are rightly called the spoil of the devil. So, we've seen what the servant song says about us. We've seen what it says about God. And now what it says about the successful servant. We'll get first who the servant was. Isaiah 52.13 it says the servant was wise. We've already talked about this. We know the servant is wise and acts wisely and therefore is successful. And we know what the original readers, readers of this passage did not know. The servant acts with the wisdom of God because he is God. In the benediction of the letter to the Romans, Paul says to the only wise God, be glory and forevermore, glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The servant was insignificant. See that in verse, uh, chapter 53, verse 2. To the world, the servant wasn't much to look at. Even before the crucifixion. The song says that the servant grew up like a root or a twig out of dry ground. Twigs are not very useful. My neighbor keeps dropping twigs from his tree on my yard. They aren't useful. And the ground that this twig is found in is parched. Isaiah furthers the idea when he says the servant was nothing that would draw any attention. Isaiah says he has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We would not think of him as important. A king is not born in an animal's feeding trough. Although when the servant came, there were some, a few, those who had faith who knew who the servant was. In the first chapter of his gospel, the Apostle John says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the song says that the servant knew sickness. The servant was, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's that word again, grief. Same word. The word meaning sickness. The word, same word used to describe our sinful state. And it's used here, the word says the servant knew about our sin and understood our sin. He didn't sin, but he knew it. The word is attached to the idea that the servant was a man of sorrows. That's plural. That word, Hebrew word, can be translated pains. The servant knew our pains. He knew the effect of sin. And he knew how it destroyed and damaged people. Have you ever wondered why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that Jesus, that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Jesus wept because Lazarus died. And Jesus knew the pain of loss. He wept because he knew the reason for death is sin. And he knew how death caused so much pain. And pain for even the people that Jesus loved. The, the family of Lazarus. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Regarding the suffering of the servant, Wayne Grudem says this, In a broad sense, the penalty Christ bore in paying for our sins was suffering in both his body and soul throughout his life. Though Christ's sufferings culminated in his death on the cross, his whole life in a fallen world involves suffering. 
suffering, the sorrows of the servant, the pains of the servant, the grief of the servant would become even greater. What the servant did. The servant did not open his mouth. In Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there is no deceit in his mouth. The servant, it says, was oppressed. He was afflicted. That is, he was pressed down pressed down upon by others, but like a sheep was silent. A sheep brought to be sheared or to be slaughtered is silent. And so the comparison is valid, but when we're talking about sheep, we're talking about the response of an animal. Their servant, in response to the false accusations and the unjust trials, did not try to defend himself. He did not try to talk his way out of being tried and crucified. He didn't hire a an expensive lawyer. But more than that, he didn't do any violence, and he didn't commit any deceit. Twice in those verses we just read, the servant is said not to have spoken, not to have opened his mouth, but at least six times in the gospel accounts of Christ's trials and his torture, Jesus said nothing. Matthew 27, 12 through 14, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The affliction imposed on the servant, he voluntarily accepted. One commentator said this was, quote, the silence of deliberate self-submission. And the servant bore our sickness. Isaiah 53 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We've already seen that the word grief here means sickness. It's the sickness of sin. And Isaiah here makes clear that more than knowing, the servant bore our sins on himself. The very one who was not sick became sick for us. The servant was pierced and he was crushed for our iniquity. This is the language of substitution. The servant was not pierced and crushed for his iniquity, but for ours. Our iniquity was laid on him, on him who knew no sin, and on him who who became sick for us, and died for us so that we would not have to suffer the penalty of our iniquity. The penalty that the servant took for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The result of the servant taking our sin is our peace. Romans 5 says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are no longer God's enemies. We are no longer alienated. We are no longer hostile toward him because of what the servant did. And if we have faith that he did it. And it says we are healed by his wounds. Now physical healing is a part of what we have as believers. 
to some degree now. We pray for one another for healing, and, and at times God does heal, sometimes miraculously. But we will be fully healed and in perfection when we go to heaven. But the context of this passage emphasizes that this healing is the healing of the effect of sin. It's the healing that leads to salvation. Isaiah knew this when he spoke of the future kingdom for God's people when he said, Isaiah 33, 24, And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. And then the servant made an offering. Isaiah says something sound, that's out, sounds odd to our ears. Way back in chapter 2, 15, he says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle, what does that mean? When combined with the phrase in 53.10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, we can understand that the suffering of the servant is not just a substitution for us, but it's an offering made to God that the original readers would have understood, at least understood the idea of. Sprinkle here is a term used in the language of sin offerings in the Old Testament. The priest would sprinkle some of the blood from the bull or the calf or the sheep, take some of the blood of that offering Sprinkle it on the altar in a process that would lead to, or that would result in the penitent sin being forgiven or covered. Christ made an offering, but it was a much better offering. We learned about this in Hebrews when we studied that. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even uh, then, the, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifying the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The offering made by the servant caused him anguish, but ended in his satisfaction at the salvation of many. Isaiah 53.11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The book of Hebrews said Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. I think part of that joy set before Christ was being able to see what he accomplished through his sacrifice. This once-for-all offering that made many to be accounted righteous. By the way, while the Jews in Babylon who first read this would have had a very hard time conceiving this, in order for the the successful servant to see and be satisfied after being crushed, that is, after being killed, has to mean that he had to be resurrected. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Isaiah ends the servant's song by saying that the servant poured out his soul to death 
and that he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The successful servant, Jesus Christ, identifies with sinners, not because he sinned, he didn't sin, but because he took on our sin. For those who believe, the servant makes, his, uh, makes us his family, adopted as sons and daughters, children of God, with the guarantee of the full inheritance from the Father. Romans eight fourteen through 17. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit as adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, I'd like you to consider a few things. When I went to preaching school, okay, I didn't go to preaching school. You could probably tell. I did take a preaching class in, in Bible college. It was a terrible class. It was awful. But I have read about preaching. I've studied preaching. I've listened to other preachers. I've listened to Caleb, who's a pretty darn good preacher. One thing I learned, though, when I did all this reading and studying and learning, and when I took classes about teaching the scriptures, one thing I learned is that when you teach or when you preach the scriptures, you should provide an application or applications based on the passage that you preach out of. And applying the scripture is a good thing. We should respond to the word of God, not out of obligation or pressure, but out of our love for God who saved us and wants to lead us to become more like Jesus Christ. However, I think there are times when we need less application and more thankfulness to and worship of, in this case, for what the servant has done for us. Becoming sick with our sin, for making an offering to of himself so that we would be forgiven and so that we can eternally be with God and be with the successful servant, Jesus, freed from the penalty the servant took on himself for us. I hope you'll forgive me for not preaching a Christmas sermon. The servant song is not about the child in the feeding trough. Christmas is not about singing angels or stars or shepherds or wise men or lights or trees or presents. As good as those things are, and those things are good, and those things can point us to think about Jesus Christ. Angels announced the advent of the successful servant. Shepherds and men worshipped that child who would be the successful servant. Lights point to the light of the world, who is Jesus. Presents point to the greatest gift that the successful servant gave. Christmas is about what that child in the feeding trough came to do as God's successful servant. God's servant was successful and offers us the opportunity to know him. Okay, maybe I can't do this without a little bit of application. If you know Jesus... If you know the successful servant, if you have believed that, that what, Christ has done, what Christ has done for you, then thank him some more. Worship him some more for his success in being crushed by God for you, saving you, and as a result, giving you peace with God and making you part of his family. That's Christmas. If you don't know Jesus, now's a great time to get to know him. 
it wasn't Christmas, but uh, my wife tells the story about when she got saved, that it was Easter that she went to church and, and went forward, and how what a special time that was to get saved. Christmas is a special time to get saved. You can get saved any time, but Christmas is kind of cool. If you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to get to know him, and I would encourage you to ask me about Jesus, and or ask Caleb, or ask the folks who will be up here in a few moments, the prayer team. Ask them about who this Jesus is and how he can save you. Finish with this. The Apostle Peter picked up a lot from Isaiah. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for crushing, being crushed to save us. Thank you for taking the torture and taking the pain and the suffering that you did for us. Thank you for that. And thank you, Jesus Christ, for coming to us even as a child. The whole point being the cross and the whole point being your desire that we would be saved because of your work. Thank you, Lord, for that. We worship you. We praise you. We glorify you. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to worship you more and to thank you more. And I pray, Lord, that there are people here who do not yet know you, that they would come to know you even today. In Jesus' name, amen.